T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer Jake Hughes here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is a little bit delayed. He will be joining us, so don't worry. You're not going to be stuck with just me for too long. You'll also get some Eric. Anyway, today we have got a fantastic show for you. We are going to play an interview what we did with Chrissy Houlihan. Now, Chrissy is an Air Force veteran, and she is also doing something really cool. She is a congressional candidate for Pennsylvania's 6th District. Lots of really cool stuff. We'll talk to her about what her platforms are and what she hopes to accomplish in politics and how she got went from Air Force to politics. Like, that's kind of a, you know, there are a lot of veterans running for Congress these days, but it's always interesting to hear their stories. But I want to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, to check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you're also following us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us, you'll get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere. We stay on top of that stuff because we are veterans just like you. We are a dedicated group of veterans bringing you the resources, the tools, and the entertainment that you want and that you need to live your best veteran life. You see, I tried to say the tagline, but I couldn't remember the entire the entire thing, so I kind of had to improv it there for a little bit, but it's good. Anyway, let's check out what's going on here on ConnectingVets.com. Here's a story from our own Phil Briggs, Phil Bird Dog Briggs. It's called Colors on the Canvas Heal Anxiety, Depression, and PTSD. Now, we've known for a while that there are many different ways to treat PTSD. Like, there's pharmaceutical drugs, there's therapy, and art therapy is one of those things that's kind of new and emerging over the past few years. Like, I know when I uh, when I uh, was out processing from the Army and I worked at Walter Reed for a little bit, that they had an art therapy project that seemed to be helping a lot of people. And this is run by uh, art therapy director at Walter Reed, Mallory Von Fossen. She says, using art to help patients to communicate without words. Uh, Though it may sound impossible to sort through feelings and emotions without discussion, using art is proving to be one of the most effective ways to heal. Van Fossen says that whether it's drawing or painting, art of any kind uses a completely different path part of the brain, and this allows them to express feelings and emotions that may not even have words for. Now, I'm going to get a little personal. I don't like to get too personal, but I'm going to get a little personal. I don't mind that. I I got nothing to hide, you know, because my God, I'm awesome. So who doesn't want to hear more about me? But uh, I've done some stuff similar to this. I've actually done writing therapy, which is exactly what it sounds like. You sit down at a computer or with a pen and paper and you just write 
And this was helpful for me because I actually, if you didn't know, I used to be a writer. Nothing major or anything. I wrote some I wrote some fan fiction, you know, the lowest common denominator of writing, writing about someone else's intellectual property, but that's neither here nor there. But writing really helped because it's one thing to talk to another human being and to work through those issues like that, but it's completely different when you're talking to a piece of paper. And I know that sounds like complete non sequitur, like talking to a piece of paper is easier than talking to a person. Well, it kind of is because it's a combination of being in your own head and having to put words to things that you don't normally put words to. Like she said, you know, you may not even have the words for them. And that's what this art project at Walter Reed is doing. Uh, Van Fossen also says, I don't ask patients to draw what's bothering them, but I may ask them to draw a feeling or an emotion, like relaxation or anger. If those were places, what would they look like? And looking at the story, it's some fantastic art. Like, there's a picture of what looks like a burn pit in the middle of an Iraqi city or an Afghan city with uh, plumes of black smoke coming up. And uh, it was done by a patient at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And it's just, it really makes me feel good knowing that there are people doing stuff like this to help veterans. And it's not just because of, you know, it's not just the usual therapy. Because talking to a doc, again, I'm getting a little personal. Talking to a doctor sounds easy. And talking to a piece of paper sounds easy, and drawing a picture sounds easy. But when it's emotions that you don't necessarily really know how to process, and then you have to put them into words, it forces you to think about things differently. And that different type of thinking might just be what helps people. But sometimes, even the most uh, worthwhile therapy just uh, psychotherapy just isn't enough. And that's where sometimes you can go into uh, treatment options that sound, uh, uh, what, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They sound incongruent. Like, how does this work with this? And uh, CBS News has a story, and we also did a story recently about this, or, or at some point about connecting bets about this. Uh, MDMA, the main ingredient in ecstasy, could be key in helping veterans with PTSD. Now, you know, for a while, or, okay, I got to be careful how I word that. We've heard anecdotal evidence for a while that certain, quote-unquote, illicit drugs could help with means of psychotherapy. Like, there's been the big push from all the big VSOs and from most of the veteran community to get... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to get uh, medical marijuana legalized, you know, for medicinal purposes. And this just goes to show that it's these things that we never thought about before. Who knew that a club drug could actually help? And this uh, story is very interesting. It tells a story of uh, John Lubecki, who was uh, an, an army sniper that did a year in Afghanistan or I'm sorry, Iraq, and he came home and he was suicidal. He says, I went home, loaded a Beretta 9mm, 
put it to a temple and pulled the trigger, but the gun malfunctioned. So to me, that's one of those, it wasn't your time yet, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but, and he tried several times again, but that has now stopped thanks to a unique therapy. Over three sessions, Lubecki spent six to eight hours under the influence of MDMA, the active ingredient in ecstasy. And Lubecki was able to talk about his trauma, thus making progress dealing with it. Because it's it's almost the same thing as the art therapy and as the uh, the writing therapy in that writing and art, like uh, Miss Van Fossen said in the previous story, activates or uses different parts of your brain. You have to process things differently before you can get them out. And it seems like this story is saying that um, MDMA is basically doing the same thing. It's activating different parts of the human brain that we may not normally be using or heightening senses that can be used as a way of properly working through problems. And um, uh, the doc, uh, Rick Doblin, who is the runs the, uh, let's see, this is a word soup, Multiple, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies is a nonprofit advocating for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Doblin says that it starts by reducing activity in the amygdala. Amygdala, I've been playing too much Bloodborne. It starts... <laughs> It starts by reducing activity in the amygdala, which is the fear processing part of the brain, so that people's fearful emotions linked to trauma can be more easily recalled and processed. Story says that once the drug produces feelings of safety, veterans can then access memories which have been crippling before. While one in three veterans found pills like Zoloft and Paxil effective in the treatment, a study included 24 veterans showed that PTSD was eliminated in 68% of vets treated with MDMA-assisted therapy. That's really cool. And, of course, we're joined by someone else very cool, our own <laughs> Eric Dane. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, you're cool when uh, you're not stuck in traffic. This was insane. I'm not going to get into it too much, but every traffic incident that could happen, I witnessed today. A wheel fell off of a van. Just fell off. <laughs> Finally get up there, and it's sideways, blocking both lanes of a parkway. So, yeah, it was a nightmare drive. But anyway, what are we talking about? We're talking about how uh, psychedelic drugs are being used to treat PTSD. Hmm. And specifically, this story talks about MDMA, the active ingredient in ecstasy. Right. And it mentions, like I said, it produces feelings of safety and reduces uh, activity in the fear processing part of the brain so that they can think about those memories and emotions without being overwhelmed. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, but I also understand why there are going to be some people who are very much against that. Yeah. It's because when those uh, any drug is used illegally, it's viewed as a bad thing, and uh, rightfully so in many cases. So, <clears throat> you know, you're going to have people who are saying, well, ecstasy, that's just a club drug that people use when they're listening to music. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it can't have a medical use, just because that's the way you think of it, kind of like with marijuana. That's the situation going on with that, where... It's been thought of in one way for so long 
now that it's being thought of in a medical way, it's taken people a while to come around to that. And I think with these, it'll probably take even longer because these are like really recreational drugs. Yeah, these are serious illicit drugs. But similar studies have been done using like magic mushrooms. Yeah. And that, that's been going on for a few more years. So hopefully we're seeing some movement on this kind of stuff because if it helps, it always comes to me, it comes down to if it helps veterans, why don't we give it a shot? Well, and think about this. When people, if you're one of those who looks at it as these are bad drugs, they're illegal drugs, they're illegal for a reason, what's the worst drug? What would you say is the worst drug, Jake? Probably either, probably crack cocaine. I would say heroin. Well, that, yeah, that was my second choice. Heroin uh, kills more people than crack cocaine, certainly, but also it's essentially opium, and we use that medically everywhere. Some see some say too much and with the opioid <laughs> epidemic. There's certainly some aspects of the, the overuse of opiates. But if we're able to use what I think is far and away the worst drug crack, yeah, crack's not good. Sure. But the most deadly, the most addictive, the most destructive drug, if we're able to use that medically, then why not ecstasy? Why not LSD? Why not marijuana? You know? Yeah, you're right. And it's, it goes down to, uh, the changing the perspective of people and making people realize that every well, there's another story we're gonna get, we're about to get to that talks about now not everyone who does has substance abuse issues mm -hmm. is necessarily a worthless drunk or a, 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 a you know a, a a dirty homeless person on the street yeah. trying to pick on their next high. Uh, this is from Military Times. It says that veterans facing judges to get more. Veterans facing judges to get more courtroom advocates as legal assistance programs expand. And this is coming from um, the Veterans Justice Outreach Program, which is recently signed into law by President Trump. Uh, a significant expansion of this that will pull dozens of specialists into courtrooms nationwide to help veterans facing legal troubles. And this stems from... People who have, you know, you think of crimes like crimes of anger or of fear or of rage that uh, veterans can get in problem with or substance abuse issues like alcoholism or things like that. Right. And that the first thought of people's heads is, oh, you were drunk driving? Nail them to the wall. Who cares? What if it's, but with the veteran sometimes, what if there's an underlying issue? Eh, with drunk driving, that's one thing that I, I don't care. I don't care what your underlying issues are. You've made a horrible mistake, and you do need to pay for it. So I don't know if that's the best example uh, because you're putting other people's lives at risk. I mean, we talk about gun violence in this country. Many more people are killed in car accidents and you know, drunk driving, texting while driving. Those are two of the leading causes, uh, of course, along with reckless driving. So I, I don't know if drunk driving is is a good example, but when it comes to, I, I don't know, let's say someone who's drunk in public, not behind uh, the wheel of a vehicle, or someone who you know gets into a fight at a bar or something like that, who's uh, uh, drunk or something like that, then I could certainly, certainly see it. I think it depends on the situation for me, but it's another one of those things where to, to being veterans, does that really give us some sort of special category when it comes to breaking the law? Well, eh, I don't know. Well, it is kind of a sticky issue. And uh, Representative Mike Kaufman of Colorado, he said in his statement that the goal of the program expansion is to use rehabilitation instead of incarceration for veterans. His full statement says that our veterans have served us and now we need to do our part to make sure they can overcome some of the difficulties involved in adjusting to civilian life after the military and now with that i mean i in general think that the 
justice system should be more oriented towards rehabilitation than just punishment. But, you know, that's my own personal views, so we can not get into that. But uh, this outreach program has handled more than 184,000 veterans' cases since its creation in 2009, conducting outreach to veterans already in prison, providing legal assistance to others facing incarceration, and working with local law enforcement on training related to the challenges veterans can face. Now, you brought up a good point of, does this make us our own protected category? And I think a lot of veterans don't like to put themselves on pedestals. Well, some veterans don't like to say, oh, I'm a veteran. You know, there's always jerks and idiots who are like, oh, I'm a veteran. I deserve special treatment. Rah, yeah. rah, rah. They're fairly rare, I think. Though. Yeah, but most veterans, I think, don't like to think of us, don't like to put ourselves on pedestals. So the question comes down to this kind of thing is it's a great I think this is a great program. It's doing really good things. But what is it about veterans specifically that makes it that so we can't use it for other people? It, yeah, and there's also uh, I, what my worry here is would be more about how many are going to use this as an excuse. You know, if I got arrested for doing something stupid, which I, I probably won't. I live a pretty boring life. I don't do many. <laughs> I don't go many places that would lead to me getting arrested, but. What if I get arrested for doing something stupid and I'm like, oh, if I just tell them like I'm a veteran and that affected me, then I, it might mitigate the circumstances. When people are in trouble, they're going to do what they can to lessen the trouble that they're in. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't like that. I don't like any special. Pre it reminds me. There's a story that just came out where a bunch of NFL Hall of Famers are demanding, I guess you could say, a uh, lifetime pension and full health insurance coverage for the rest of their lives but only the Hall of Fame players. They only want that for the Hall of Fame players. Not for all National Football League veterans, just for the ones who made the Hall of Fame. Well, what makes you special? Yeah, you were a special player. You were a great performer on the field, but you're just a person who played in the league just like anybody else. Why should only you get that? They've gotten a lot of pushback uh, because of the fact that it's it's just them, essentially. That's okay, let me ask you a question then, because I want your opinion on this. Yeah. I may get in trouble for this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh what about the tax exemption and other things we extend to Medal of Honor recipients? Uh, well, because when you look at it, at the end of the day, they were just ordinary people that did something extraordinary. Yeah, but this that the Medal of Honor is saving lives and doing things like that. I mean, there are there are certain things like uh, that you just you get for certain things that you accomplish. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. And if the NFL decides to do it for the Hall of Famers, okay. I just think it's kind of crappy that they're only doing it for people who made the Hall of Fame. You know, does there are different categories of people when it comes to the military. Do uh, someone like me who went into a war zone and spent most of my time taking pictures of the real uh, tough guys doing the tough guy stuff, do I deserve all the things that those infantrymen sitting out on a fob in the middle of no place or a cop out in the middle of no place – no, they deserve more that they did different things than I. So when it comes to comparing like NFL Hall of Famers and Medal of Honor recipients, I think you're comparing apples and cinder blocks. It's not even in the same uh, food category. Cinder blocks are much more tasty than apples and they don't make as disgusting a sound when you bite into them. Yes, more like, ow, holy crap, that hurt. <laughs> Anyway, the, the law mandates that the VA officials hire 50 program specialists for the next year. So we'll see how this program tends to uh, – we'll see how it develops. Yeah, I, I, I'm more for uh, if there is some underlying issue, allowing them to uh, get help for that. But I don't think that it should mitigate the 
the criminal aspect of it or, or the, the legal system and, and how it treats them. I don't, I think giving people special treatment, uh, unless there's something very, very clearly demonstrable that, that, you know, contributed to it, that's already something that's taken into account by the court systems. Do veterans need another level of that? I don't think so. And I think most people who break the law and do things like that, uh, it's not because they were a veteran. There may be some things that contribute to it, but you know, making bad decisions or making bad decisions, and that's most of what crime is. Right, bad and that's what, it's like that uh, the deported veteran with the the two pounds of cocaine. Yeah, it's like was that because he was a veteran, or did he just make a stupid mistake and is now trying to earn his way back in? Yeah, well, that guy was basically claiming that everything he did bad after he got out of the military was because of his time in the military. The military didn't make him try to sell pounds of cocaine to an undercover FBI agent. Didn't make him get involved with the people he chose to get involved with. I mean, it's it, he he sought that life out, and there are a lot of people, myself included, who look at that and go like, "No, dude, you're not you're not getting this one." He's also, uh, you know, it's also someone like that where if there were some brain damage issues, some demonstrable brain damage issues, some some you know listed and verified facts. thing that could go into that. That's great. Instead, what we got was his lawyer saying like, "Well, he was just about to get." Uh, uh, scre- screened for a, a traumatic brain injury at the VA. Oh, he was just about to, huh? That reminds me of just about every criminal story that you see on the news, or if you watch the first 48 on A&E, he was just about to turn his life around. Oh, it's interesting how that happens. It's when they get caught for the crimes that everybody's like, well, you know, yeah, he was doing bad stuff, but he was right at the point of turning it around when he did the worst thing that he's ever done. I don't buy it. I just, yeah. I don't. Are there cases where it could be the case? Sure, I guess there could be a guy out there who's trying to sell four pounds of cocaine, some army veteran who just got accepted to Yale and was like, well, I promised I would sell this cocaine, so <laughs> I got to do that first. And then he gets caught. You know, Maybe that's the guy who is just about to turn his life around, but I, it, how likely is it that that's the case? Not very likely. You're right. And so we'll have to see how that develops. Now, the other big news story aside from any political bullcrap has been of course tropical storm florence yeah and the massive flooding being done in the carolinas and connecting vets's own uh elizabeth howe is putting up information about it to show how the military and veteran groups are helping out with the rescue effort uh, the Pentagon has assigned over 13,470 service members and 120 and 1,286 military assets. I'm not sure what a military asset is. It's like a vehicle? Yeah. Or? yeah. Military assets can be personnel, vehicles, command posts, a- anything that the military okay. owns is an asset. Okay. And there's a lot of really cool pictures on there because the, the flooding still hasn't gone down. It's going down a bit. In some places, it's still a significant problem. I mean, time is what it takes for flooding to go down. But a devastating storm. Loss of life of uh, 25 or so, the last I heard. I think it was like 24, 25, the last I heard, which was last night. I didn't hear any updates this morning. But, you know, just a devastating thing. And in an area where there is a heavy military presence, the Mid-Atlantic region is where most of our military assets are on the East Coast. You've got... Lejeune, you've got Paris Island, you've got Beaufort, you've got just a little bit north of where the storm hit, you've got all of the things around Norfolk, which includes Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps installations. The military's there, so it's great that they're helping out, and that it's not just being like, oh, that's the National Guard's job. No, it's everybody's job who lives in that area, and that's something that 
it's kind of a side job of the military. You know, it's one of those things that, hey, we're there. We have the ability to help. Let's help. Yeah, and it's not just the military. Veteran groups as well, like uh, Team Rubicon, yep. that we'll be speaking with, I believe, sometime this week. Uh, we're we're waiting to hear back. Waiting from to hear them, back so, from them, yeah. obviously. And also a group that uh, Phil Briggs, Bird Dog, has a story about. Sheepdog Impact Assistance is down in Wilmington, North Carolina, helping out with the flood victims. And it's a national. I've never heard of them before, but it's a national nonprofit that exists to engage, assist, and empower veterans through service opportunities and outdoor adventures. So it sounds like they're they do other things besides disaster relief. Yeah. But that's what they're being known for now. Yeah. When I hear Sheepdog, I think of uh, Tim Kennedy's company that does like uh, training for people, like military and special forces centric training for people who want to do that. Kind of like fantasy uh, fantasy camp for baseball, but if you want to learn how to you know, do uh, do cool stuff outdoors. That's called uh, Sheepdog also. And, uh, you know, there are several companies that have that name in there. But what they're doing to assist down there is fantastic. They're not as well known as Team Rubicon. Doesn't make what they're doing any less great or any less important. And there are several, there are many other groups that I'm sure we don't know about. And then, of course, you have the VSOs when it comes to veteran organizations. The American Legion is helping out down there. The VFW, AMVETS. There, there are a lot of veterans in that area. I would say probably if you took the area where the storm hit, considering all the military installations that are in the area and just surround it, probably more than anywhere else in the world. And it's great to see them helping out down there. Yep, it is. And we'll be continuing to follow that story on ConnectingVets.com, which you should check out that website to find out more fantastic stuff. Coming up in just a little bit, we'll be playing our interview with Chrissy Houlihan, Air Force veteran and congressional candidate in Pennsylvania. Lots of cool stuff, so make sure you stick around. It's the morning briefing. He's Eric Dame. I'm Jake Hughes. You are awesome. And we shall return right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we're doing. And I'll tell you why we're doing it. Each and every member of the Connecting Vets team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. The fear, the struggle, the difficulty that you can face when you're transitioning from a life in uniform to a life as a civilian, we know all too well how that can be, and that's why we're working all too hard well, that's probably not the right term, to make sure that you have the best information and news and basically making sure that you are aware of everything that's available to help you live your best veteran life. So visit ConnectingVets.com every day and follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest knows what it's like to wear the uniform of the United States Air Force and soon might know what it's like to wear one of those fancy pins that members of Congress get on Capitol Hill. She is Chrissy Houlihan, who is running for office in Pennsylvania's 6th District. Chrissy, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you. I'm really great. Thanks for having me. So, as I mentioned, an Air Force veteran long before the political career. Tell us just a little bit about your time in service, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did in the Air Force. Sure. So, uh, service is part of my family responsibility and duty. I am third generation military. My grandfather and my father were career naval aviators uh, and both served about 30 years each in the Navy. 
and I joined the family business right out of school. I had an ROTC scholarship uh, in in the Air Force, which they uh, graciously allowed me to join instead of the Navy. Had the aspiration at that time to be an astronaut, and so followed Sally Ride to the Stanford University, which is where she also went with an uh, the idea that I really wanted to be a pilot and an astronaut. Mm. And what did you end up doing for your time in the Air Force? Because I didn't see astronaut on the <laughs> it didn't uh, resume. Didn't end up happening that way, <laughs> and that's okay. I, you know, I had the opportunity, frankly, very early days to meet my husband, who has now been my husband for more than twenty-five years, and they knew the lifestyle that I was going to ask a family of, uh, and I knew that I really didn't want to sign up a next generation of people to be as wandering as I had been as a child and to move around as frequently as I had. And so decided to instead seek a career as an engineer. So I was a program manager and an engineer in the Air Force. I served up at Hanscom Air Force Base in the Boston area. I worked on the Strategic Defense and Air Defense Initiative programs as an engineer. So my job was to think all day, every day about the end of days. You know, what would happen if the uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or otherwise were raining down on us? And how would we react and how would we make good decisions? Of course, you rose to the rank of captain in the United States Air Force and then uh, decided that your time in the Air Force was at an end. What do you recall about that period of time in your life when you took off those Air Force blues for the last time? Was that a a difficult time for you? You know, it was a difficult time in the sense that it was a a difficult time for our nation and trying to understand what the threat was. I served in the late 80s and early 90s, and so I was serving right when the Berlin Wall was falling, right when we were trying to establish what our threat was was at that point in time. And so there was a reduction in force and I had actually had my first child. I was planning on having a second child. And I can tell you that it was a struggle to decide to separate from the military. But I think, again, it was the right choice for my family. Uh, I was the the only person in active duty at the time. Of course, my husband was not. Uh, And it was quite a challenge to raise a small and young family at that time in the military as as a woman. You know, I think about the fact that I, I, I have a family now. I didn't while I was in for 13 years, and I can't imagine having put them through the rigors that a, a military family has to go through. I'm kind of glad that I found them uh, afterwards, that I found my wife and that my son came along after I was out of the Navy. But Chrissy Houlihan started her family while serving in the Air Force, moved out. What did you do when you got out of the Air Force? Your first step was not to run for Congress as you are now up (laughs) in Pennsylvania. So you had engineering training. I'm going to assume that you probably went into that field in some manner. So I've had a really eclectic career after separating. And what I did immediately after the military was I went back to graduate school, also Mm. in engineering up in the Boston area at MIT. And I was also fortunate then because there was a combined program with the defense aerospace industry and the military, all the services in the military, that was something called the Lean Aircraft Initiative. And basically what that was, was an initiative to try and understand what the Japanese had done successfully in manufacturing cars in the auto industry and figure out how to apply that to the airframe manufacturing industry in the American defense uh, area. Wow, that's way over my head, as are most things at the Massachusetts Institute of <laughs> Technology, I think. But obviously, you worked on that and uh, and eventually uh, moving on into the political sphere. But between that, I mean, w- was it mostly uh, 
kind of looking at those sorts of things for you and staying in that military one, or is it more eclectic? As no, you and that and that's when my career really took a hard right turn. I had the chance to join some friends of mine from college who had started, of all things, a t-shirt company, oh, wow. a basketball apparel t- and, and footwear company it eventually became. <laughs> and so, as you can imagine, with a, a background like an engineering and, and defense background that my folks didn't think that I necessarily should be taking a hard right into apparel and footwear. Uh, but I thought it was a really good uh, opportunity to join a very young and rapidly growing company, f- very diverse, full of a lot of really interesting people. That company was called And One Basketball. Oh, um, I very served, familiar with it. Yeah. I served as the chief operating officer there. First mom, first woman, first person uh, who didn't really care about basketball at that organization. <laughs> and my job was to grow that company from effectively startup to a couple hundred million in revenues every year. I had a couple and one t-shirts, so I've probably paid for like your parking at least once or you, twice. You definitely helped uh, <laughs> help clothe my children. Thank you for that. That is uh, a very eclectic move, going from engineering and looking at uh, basically moving Japanese technology to the U.S. aerospace industry. Working in a variety of fields is something that I don't know if we see from too many political candidates. So I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But first, when did... The political bug bite you. When did you decide, you know, I think I want to run for office? So I really wasn't bitten by the bug until the election of 2016. Uh, the evening of the election of 2016 was a very difficult experience for me. Uh, as I mentioned, I am third generation military and I was raised in a household and in a family that was very much raised to respect the democracy Uh, to respect the will of the people and to salute smartly and carry on, regardless of who your commander-in-chief is. Um, And for the very first time in my 51 years of being on the planet, I very much worried about the democracy, and I worried about the freedoms that I and my father and my grandfather and my extended family, I have four active-duty cousins right now, uh, had been working towards and for over our lifetimes And so I sort of did a little bit of a a self-gut check in a way and kind of realized that I had a lot of the background and experience that I thought was relevant and important for leadership to have in government. And that uh, even though I hadn't had any experience in running for any sort of political office before, nor did I have any interest in doing it before, that this was the time to kind of come off the sidelines and raise your hand and answer the call in a very different way for the very first time. And because I have a background in defense and and, uh, and uh, national security and a background in business, and we haven't talked about it, but I also have a background in education as well, I really thought that those were the skills that we should ask for from our leaders, uh, specifically from Washington. And so it was at that point that I stepped forward to try and answer this particular call. I think whether someone agrees or disagrees with someone politically, they can look at their resume and see, oh, yeah, no, they check off all the boxes. And it it certainly seems that you do. Here's a question that I don't know that I've asked to any of the other candidates that we've had on the show. How does one go about starting the act of running for Congress? Did they come looking for you? Did you go looking for them? How did it actually begin? 
So some some candidates, I believe, are you know formally recruited to run for office because they fill various buckets and check various boxes. I think uh, in my particular case, I recruited myself in the same <laughs> way that I recruited myself to join the military. Um, and the way that I did that was several. I first and foremost went to my local. I'm a Democrat. My local Chester County is where I'm from. Democratic Party uh, attended a training session there to try and understand what it meant to run for office. I didn't actually realized this until I attended that, but there are hundreds and thousands of elected officials and offices in the state of Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And so it wasn't just raising your hand to run for Congress and there weren't just six people in the room. There were hundreds of people who attended that training session at that time. Uh, the other thing that I did was I reached out to a couple of organizations that align with my, you know, sensibilities. One of them is an organization called the New Dems, which is down here in Washington, D.C. And the New Dems are a group of moderate Democrats who are pro-business, pro-national security, and also pro-people. So I talked to them about my ideas. Um, and finally, I, I reached out to an organization called Emily's List, which helps to get women elected to Congress specifically. And all of those organizations, na- national, statewide, and local were helpful in, in helping me understand how to do this. You are now just a couple months away from the election. You've gone through uh, the majority of this process. Is it something that you would recommend to other veterans out there, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, if they're thinking, you know, I think I might be able to make a difference running for office, either on the national level like you or the statewide level, the local level, whatever the case may be. What would you say to someone who's thinking, eh, maybe I'd consider that if they're on the fence, which which way should they go? I would very much encourage other veterans and, frankly, other women as well to uh, serve in this in this way. I think it's really, really important, and I think that we are a voice that needs to be at the table. I think that it's hard to be a veteran or a woman or a scientist, an engineer, uh, an educator. All of those things are hard for uh, you to crack through, you know, to break through a process that really elevates mostly uh, lawyers, to be honest. Um, But it is something that I would say we should all try and aspire to do because our issues are the issues of our nation and we really need to be taking care of each other. I think that veterans singularly understand what it means to serve. And this is service regardless of your party, regardless of your policies, and your serving country above all. We're speaking with Chrissy Houlihan, who is running for Congress in Philadelphia, sorry, in Philadelphia's, in Pennsylvania's 6th District, Philadelphia's District, that's a whole different thing. It's in the Philadelphia area, though. As you said, Chester County, I'm from the Northeast, I'm familiar with the area. Are there other veterans in your local area that you've been able to meet up with who are also running for office on that local or, or national or statewide level? I've had the remarkable experience of meeting a few dozen veterans who are running in the in the national arena um, and unified uh, in our efforts together to make a difference in this way. Um, some of them are in our general region. Max Rose is running up in New York. Mikey Sherrill running in the New Jersey area. Uh, have the opportunity to meet a variety of people all across our our country, frankly. And that is one of the things that motivates me to keep going. This is not my natural habitat. I didn't anticipate that I was going to grow up to be a congressional candidate. Uh, But I really do find a lot of hope in in the people on both sides of the aisle who are running, who are veterans. That's my next question for you, actually. And that is that we have quite a few who are running for office. We have quite a few who are in office percentage of those serving in Congress. It's higher than the population in general. It's still at almost the lowest levels that it's ever been, certainly since World War II when just about everybody in Congress had some military background. 
Do you think that the military background that you share with someone like uh, a conservative that we were talking about off air, Dan Crenshaw is running down in Texas. Do you think that that, that shared military experience that you have and that respect between the two of you for that, do you think that that could lead to finding some sort of middle ground on some of these more difficult issues that we deal with? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was serving active duty, there was never a conversation about party affiliation when we were working together to get mm. things done. A lot of the veterans that I'm working with uh, now in this in this particular effort uh, have similar stories where they effectively say, you know, nobody ever told me that this is this flight's only for Democrats or that organization's only for Republicans. We need to work together. We need to make sure that we're elevating the country over everything else. And I think that I really do believe that that's one of the uh, things strengths that veterans bring to the table when they're working together is they're enormously capable team builders and pragmatists. And they're also people who have an understanding of what it takes for someone to be in the military, what that means, which I would say in the vast majority of cases, someone who served in the military, you can certainly look at them and say, this is someone who cares about this country. Mm -hmm. Whereas some people on either side of the political spectrum can look at uh, people on the other side who didn't serve in the military and say that person wants to destroy what America's all about. Do you think that can also be some sort of a, a congealing factor when it comes to this fractured political state that we're in right now? Absolutely. I, I really do worry for the country that we really are divided in a way that I've never seen before. And it pains me to see the way that we're uh, othering each other, that we are constantly trying to figure out what you know, tribe you're from, for lack of a better way of describing it. And we're all Americans. Uh, I think veterans understand that more than anybody. And I do think that the veterans who are hopefully rushing into this situation are all about making sure that we can heal ourselves as a nation. One of the things that I recall from speaking to Dan and speaking to Ken Harbaugh and speaking to Senator Joni Ernst and, and all the all the politicians that we've spoken to on the show and those running for office the majority, of, not the majority, all of them, each and every one has told me that they may have used their service in some way to kind of get their foot in the door, but then they need people to listen to what they're talking about and focus on the issues. Serving in the military is a great thing, but it does not immediately mm -hmm. qualify you for office. Mm -hmm. It's where you stand on the issues. So let's talk a little bit about the issues that you're running on. What are the core issues of Chrissy Houlihan's campaign for the 6th District in Pennsylvania? So the issues in the 6th Congressional District, which is in the western suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, of Pennsylvania, are not different, in my opinion, than any of the issues that are of Pennsylvania or the nation at large. They're what would be considered kitchen table issues, either the issues that keep you up at night. Uh, again, apartisan, nonpartisan issues. They're making sure that people have access to affordable and quality health care, uh, making sure that we have a continued access to great education that we have, many of us have been beneficiaries of, making sure that we have good jobs, jobs that treat each other with dignity, with a living wage, with equal pay for equal work, uh, and making sure that Medicare and Social Security and those uh, those really important safety nets are also something that's consistently available for all of us. Of course, people can go to your website, ChrissyHoulihanForCongress.com, to find out more about those issues. One interesting one that I see when looking down the list, and it's one that I, you know, many people with military backgrounds seem to disagree on for some reason, and that has to do with guns. One thing I noticed from your website that I found interesting and wanted to uh, to ask you about was that you don't put gun control, but actually gun violence prevention, which uh, some people would say those are the same issue. Some people would say uh, that they're different. 
where do you stand on guns, which particularly in America's cities are, are, are basically a, a scourge? There's mm-hmm. something that has caused too much suffering mm-hmm. in places like Chicago, in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. New York City, go around the country to all the cities. Uh, where do you stand on guns and gun control and gun violence? And, and how do you think we should address that? So one of the things we didn't cover in our conversation yet is that I also spent the last five or six years of my career working in uh, North Philadelphia and in Philadelphia proper on um, education, issues of education and early childhood literacy amongst communities that are really underserved and very challenged by a lot of things, but one of them being violence uh, as well as uh, access to uh, quality education. And so I was actually a teacher. I taught chemistry in North Philadelphia for a time and then spent the last four years working with similarly um, communities that are similarly uh, disenfranchised. And so guns in the classroom and gun safety and addressing the uh, scourge of gun violence is, is important to me for a couple reasons. One is I do come from a heritage of um, uh, the military. I do believe strongly in the Second Amendment. I think you should have access to guns to be able to collect and to hunt and those sorts of things. But I also think there is such a thing as responsible gun ownership. In my community, 40% of us in Chester County and Berks County own guns. Uh, But I believe 70, 80, in some cases, 90% of us, depending on the issue that we're talking about, believe that there are common sense things that we can be doing to make us safer in our classrooms, in our communities, in our country. Um, And those are some of the things that we're talking about in our community in terms of gun safety. And when it comes to gun violence, uh, most of the gun violence is not being committed, of course, by lawful gun owners. There's a lot of illegal guns out on the street. However, how did they get there? Where did they come from? There are some things that we certainly do need to address, and I think people on both sides of that issue, particularly military veterans, have an understanding of that. But it is a difficult conversation. But do you think that that is one, that the the combined uh, military background of all these veterans running for Congress and those who serve, having that knowledge that you do and having that place to come from, uh, not ignorance, because there are some politicians out there wouldn't know the first thing about a gun if you asked them, you know, what what is an assault weapon, an assault rifle? What is the difference between those terms? They wouldn't know. Do you think that this is one that the veterans really should take a, a lead in addressing? I can talk certainly only for myself. It is something I feel a responsibility to lean into because of my experience, my personal background and experience, both in a classroom and also, you know, in service. I think that I have a responsibility to talk about this issue. Yeah, that's certainly a big one. And there are a lot of big issues, and those are the priorities that Chrissy Houlihan has as she runs for Congress, growing the economy, immigration reform, money and politics. When you are out on the campaign trail and people come up to you and veterans come up to you, those who agree with you, those who disagree with you, what's been the response from the veteran community to your campaign? I think it's been remarkably receptive. I mean, I I think fundamentally where I come from in Pennsylvania, the suburbs of Philadelphia are what I try to describe to other communities as a purple people. You know, we sort of have party affiliations, but they're relatively speaking loose and, and we sort of sit left of center or right of center. And we also are very private about kind of where we stand politically. And so the conversations are, are really fascinating conversations uh, in some cases where people wouldn't necessarily expect from a, a woman who, who is, uh, you know, in her 50s and uh, 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 presents herself in this way that you would have been a vet- veteran. Those are actually also interesting conversations that I've served. 
It is. And there is no, there's no standard mold for a veteran. I mean, there are uh, the, the super secret squirrel special operators out there. There are the pilots, there are the mechanics. And, and we don't all, we're not a monolith. We don't all come from the same thing. We didn't do the same thing. We don't think the same way, look the same way. Do you find ever that there are people who assume because you're a veteran and a politician now that you're going to think some, some particular way, or they might be surprised by your position on things? Well, I think I allow people to think differently sometimes who may have a certain position on something and maybe uh, feel as though maybe they're entrenched in some way in that position that whenever they have the opportunity to speak to me as a as a veteran or as a business owner and operator uh, who has a career that they may not expect of a person who's running in my position, uh, that they have a, the ability to have a more open conversation and maybe a question uh, question some of the things that they're talking about. So it's a good co- open conversations are important. It's also going to seem, at least based on your background, that there are not going to be too many conversations that you won't be able to at least have some sort of uh, thing to draw from in your background when it comes to... (coughs) Jeez, more I talk, the worse it gets. Of course, working as an engineer, working as an educator, being in the military... Do you think we need more people of that kind of diverse background in politics and fewer of the lawyers and career politicians, people who, you know, senator is what they wanted to be from when they were in the first grade? Yeah, it was actually one of the bigger motivators when I was thinking about running was the realization, a couple of realizations. One is Pennsylvania is the largest state in the country that has no women in Congress. 18 congressmen, two senators, both men, uh, were the largest one in the country that has no women. And we need the diver- that diversity at the table, but also the realization that's similar to what you just were saying, of those 18, I think only one has, a, has some sort of service, only one has some sort of a business background, only one has some sort of an education background. And again, back to the conversation of what motivated me to run, those are the pillars of our economy and those are the pillars of the responsibility of the government to make sure that we're helping each other, elevating each other. And so, yes, I believe all of that diversity needs to be at the table. Let's talk about the race and how you're expecting it to go. You're just a couple months away. Are you already starting to look at property in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> I mean, how do you think things are going to go? Is the fight anywhere near over with two months less for, for somebody who's never run for office? I don't know. Is everything done at this point? Or are you still out there pounding the pavement? I am absolutely uh, nose down, head down, you know, making sure that I finish what I've started. Uh, in addition to all of the things that I've done in my life, I'm also pathologically competitive and I want to make sure that I, I finish this opportunity. I've been running now for Congress to be able to serve in this new way for almost 18 months. Uh, I have two more months to go and I need to finish it strong. I, I'm confident, I'm hopeful that I'll have the opportunity to serve in this in this new way, uh, but I take nothing for granted. One of the bigger reasons I'm running is because of an expectation of what would have happened two years ago. Uh, and so I want to make sure that I take none of this for granted and none of the people that I hope to serve for granted either. If people are interested in finding out more about your campaign or with honor, I know that you've uh, you've had some dealings with them who are basically trying to get veterans into Congress regardless of party affiliation. Where can people go to find out more about Chrissy Houlihan and find out more about your fellow veterans that are running for office this year? 
Sure, there's a couple of great places. There's obviously for me specifically my website, ChrissyHoulahanForCongress.com. You mentioned With Honor, which is a terrific and bipartisan organization. There are a number of other organizations that have been enormously helpful to me. VoteVets.org is another place where you can access a list of veterans who are running for Congress in our community and in our country. And lastly, Serve America, which is an organization that doesn't just feature and highlight uh, veterans, but also people of service. So CIA, FBI, City Year, Peace Corps, Teach for America, which I was also part of. That kind of service matters, too. Chrissy Chrissy Houlihan, candidate for Congress, Pennsylvania's 6th District, Western Suburbs of Philadelphia. Best of luck to you in two months when you're up for that election. And if you make it down to D.C., we hope you come and visit us in the studio again. I plan on it. Thank you. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we're doing. And why are we doing it? Well, because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken that uniform off for the very last time. And so every day, our team of veterans is working to get the best information, the best benefits, the things that you need to live your best veteran life Put them on the website each and every day, ConnectingVets.com, and follow us on social media at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. It's Wednesday, that means it's American Legion Day here on The Morning Briefing, and our next guest, and guests, we have two in studio, is Greg Nemhard, Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade for the American Legion, and also our old friend Joe Plensler. Gentlemen, good morning. How are you today? Doing great. Good. Thank you for being well, we are glad that both of you are here. We've talked to Joe before. We know all about him. Let's find out a little bit about Greg Nemhard. As I understand it, you're one of those odd creatures who served in two different branches of the military. So, Greg, give us like the Cliff's Notes version of your time in service. Where are you from? When did you join? And what did you do? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I was in the Marine Corps first, and then I joined the Army Reserves. Um, I, I joined the Marine Corps a year and a half after migrating to the U.S. from Jamaica. And I spent most of my time in Camp Pendleton. I was a box kicker. That's supply for, you know, those who forget. <laughs> um, and I did two tours, got out after my second tour to Iraq. And then I joined the Army Reserves a little less than two years later. I uh, did uh, HR office work then for the Army Reserves. Very cool. And, and when you got out, did you immediately come to work for the American Legion? Or how did you become a member of the Legion team eventually? Um, it, it was a long way getting here. Uh, when I first got out, I moved uh, out of Florida to Boston, got a job working for the Army, and eventually moved down here to Virginia. And by way of job change, I found out about the American Legion, joined up, and then later on, I applied for a job there. And uh, here I am. Overall, before we talk about the great work that you're doing, what's the experience been like for you both as a Legionnaire, as a member, and then later on working for the organization? Well, as a Legionnaire, it was more of an honor being part of the organization that represents such a wide community. Um, But 
It wasn't until I started working for the American Legion that I really learned to appreciate the American Legion because of all the things that the American Legion does for the veteran community. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing just learning about some of these things and, and how the American Legion represent veterans. And me being a natural advocate, I felt like I, I just, I'm home. I fit mm. right in. You know, I love advocating on behalf of others, and the American Legion makes that possible every day. You know, there's a lot going on at the American Legion, both on the national and the local level. The local posts are doing great things in the community, also giving a great sense of uh, camaraderie for veterans out there. Right, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do, whether it's bingo, whether you want to do a fundraiser, the Legion Riders we were just talking about off air, raise a lot of money and also have a good time doing it. (laughs) Yeah, they're having having some fun out there on the roads as well. Maybe not today as it's raining in our nation's capital, but... Uh, Greg Nemhard is working on the things more at the national level, although it affects people at all levels. You are the assistant director of discharge claims upgrade. So first off, what does that exactly mean? Are you the guy who tells someone, all right, we will help you up try, uh, d- try to upgrade your discharge claim, or does it mean something else? That's exactly what it means. We are the guys that help. Uh, you know, the onus is always on the veteran to to get a lot of things together, but we provide a lot of the the resources and the information for them to submit uh, a request to the board of the different services, whether it's the Marine Corps, Navy, Army, Air Force, or even Coast Guard, to upgrade uh, their discharge. Anything that is less than honorable, they can request after, you know, we recommend after a certain number of years, you know, that they can request to have that upgraded. Who are the people that should be looking to get it upgraded? I mean, if you got a dishonorable discharge for murder or something like that. I'm guessing you're probably not going to get that upgraded anytime soon. Who are the people that are eligible for this and are most likely to see some sort of upgrade in their discharge status? Well, anybody that did not go through a general court martial uh, are eligible to apply for the upgrade. Doesn't mean they're going to get it. Um, but if you have anything less than an honorable and you did not go through a general court martial and it's been, you know, at least five or six years, uh, those people are eligible. Now, there are very different circumstances for different folks, and some people may have gotten kicked out based on, you know, minor administrative uh, issues. You know, mm-hmm. somebody may have popped on a, on a urinalysis, you know, after one time event. Um, we've, we have now a community of veterans who were diagnosed with PTSD after they got out the service. And it turns out that that PTSD diagnosis or the, the illness contributed to some behavior. You know, so they've had two, three, four, five years of good service, and all of a sudden their behavior shifts. And now they're finding out, I have PTSD that may have contributed. Um, those, those folks especially should look at, at getting a discharge upgrade. Um, but there's a lot of veterans out there with other than honorable discharge, and a lot of it is for administrative uh, or, or misbehavior. Those folks should definitely look at getting an upgrade. Does there need to be some sort of mitigating factor like PTSD? I mean, if someone is removed, let's say, an other than honorable because, you know, what is it, failure to adapt to military life, basically. They're constantly showing up late. Is that something that they can ever get changed without some sort of mitigating factor that shows there was maybe like a medical or mental reason for them to have had the issue? It, yes, there is. And, and like I said, a lot of it is circumstantial. So the, those folks who, they don't have any kind of psychological issues, 
they had a pattern of misbehavior. They couldn't adapt to military life. They were late for, you know, for their their morning assemblies and everything. Uh, absolutely. One of the things that the board looks at is, okay, what did this veteran do before entering service? How did they perform during their time in service? And what have they done since leaving service? And that part is key. And that's why I said after some time, after you've been discharged, you know, you need at least five, six years to develop a, a history after service. So the board takes a look at everything. And somebody may have done poorly during their time in service and maybe even for that reason got kicked out. But they got out of service and they've had a stellar career, education. You know, they look at that and they can see, okay, maybe they were having difficulty because of these factors. They take all that into consideration when making their decision. Who is it that makes that decision particularly? I mean, the American Legion helps people trying to get an upgrade. The American Legion doesn't have the ability to, you know, <laughs> there you go, you got it, right? Absolutely. We give them the paperwork, the resources, and we guide them in the process. We even accompany them to the hearings. There's a panel of, of uh, board members for each service, uh, Navy and Marine Corps combined, but then you have Army, Air Force. And that panel of, of board members makes a decision together as to their voting members as to whether the person gets an upgrade or not. And they either do it based on a document review or if the veteran goes to a hearing, they do it based on a combination of document review and the veteran's own testimony. And it does sound like your behavior after the fact, when you leave the military, some people might be surprised to say like, well, if you got an OTH discharge for something you did in the military, uh, it should be basically that that they're looking at alone. But it's actually more than that, right? It sounds like what you do after you get out uh, counts. Absolutely. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it does count because they look at it. Um, you know, what you do after service can give some clues as to what was going on while you were in service. It could be that, you know, that's just an age thing. You were immature. You made some silly mistakes. Um, it could be a character flaw. But they look at the big picture. They look at what you've done after service, and they say, well, you know, even if what you did in service was simply you being, you know, misbehaving or, or not adhering to rules and regulations, they look, okay, have you learned your lesson? Mm. You know, have you adjusted to life? Have you been a contributing member of society or have you continued the same pattern of behavior? One question that I think a lot of people would have for you, Greg, and we're speaking with Greg Nemhard, Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade at the American Legion, is what difference does it make for someone if they go from other than honorable to, uh, you know, general or whatever the status is? What are the how does that benefit the veteran who received an OTH? Well, the common, the, the most important is you have a different picture of your service. You know, if you have children, you want to be able to tell your children, I have an honorable discharge. Um, a lot of veterans, they care about their legacy. They want to, you know, they want to be the right example for their children and their family members. On the other side of it, a lot of veterans uh, want to be able to take advantage of certain benefits offered by either state, you know, local, state, or federal governments, uh, whether it's VA benefits, housing benefits. And the type of discharge on your DD-214 could affect whether you qualify for those benefits or not. And especially for homeless veterans or veterans who are just down on their luck, they're the ones that usually need it the most. They're the ones that I get called from, calls from the most. If someone's out there and they're hearing this and they're saying, you know, I think I might want to try to get my discharge upgraded, 
what are the first steps they need to take? Are there documents they need to gather, or is it as simple as just contacting their local uh, American Legion service officer and getting in touch with your office? My recommendation is contact your local American Legion first and foremost. That way you're not uh, collecting unnecessary documents, but that they can guide you in the process and actually help you develop that packet. Of course, you also have worked in claims, which another thing where people need to have all their ducks in a row when uh, making a claim, when they're looking for a discharge upgrade. How important is it for someone to have all the documents that they need, or are the documents that are required for something like a discharge upgrade something that you'll be able to get copies of if it's something that you don't have anymore, like your DD-214 or what have you? Uh, You know, if you have the documents, it, it is always best practice to present those in the packet. However, if you don't have something but the services have it, then you can collect that after the fact via document request. Especially you can submit an SF-180, which is basically requesting copies of the records that the, the services or the archives have for you. But you can, it's always best practice if you have it to present it with the packet. If not, it is something that you can get after the fact. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see from people who are looking to upgrade their discharge that may make it less likely for them to be successful in that goal? One of the biggest mistakes that I see are people who they don't seek that counsel from a service organization and they submit a claim without a thorough uh, statement or they make a statement, but the statement is, I want a discharge upgrade because I want VA benefits. Mm. That is not in the purview of the boards. They will tell you that is not in their purview. Um, and so it's always best to seek that counsel that way you're actually filing a thorough do- um, packet and not simply submitting a piece of document without anything for them to consider. Does the era of the veteran make a difference? Has someone got another than honorable discharge or something like that back in Vietnam? Does it make them any less or more likely to be able to upgrade their discharge status than someone who served in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or, or served more recently? No, it does not. Um, it, the The boards look at the accumulation of your service and your life. Of course, if you got out, if you served in the Iraq war and you got out a year ago and you haven't had much time to really, you know, do much in society, it's, it's, it's less for them to work with. Whereas somebody who served in Vietnam, they've had a lifetime of experience for the board to consider. But beyond that, it doesn't make a difference. When it comes down to it, uh, if you go to try to upgrade your discharge, is that it if they say no, or is it something that you can do repeatedly? Is it something that you can try again a few years down the road? There is an appeal process that you can take advantage of. Uh, We often uh, advise those seeking a discharge upgrade to ask for a document review the first time around. That way you reserve the right for a hearing. So if they deny it the first time, you can appeal and that time request a hearing before the board. However, if the board uh, denies it, you know, some people may say, well, you can't appeal again, but you can. You know, you can continue to, to file, request a discharge upgrade. You may have new documents and new information for them to consider a third time that you didn't have that second time. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman's character going up for parole over and over again. And then one day... 
finally went through when he was least expecting it. So just because someone's maybe tried to do this in the past, it doesn't sound like they should let that put them off from trying again, does it? No, it does not. And, you know, we, we often get discouraged by what we, we consider the bureaucracy. We see it both on the claim mm-hmm. side and on the discharge upgrade side. Uh, they say no, and we say, well, there it is. They say no. That, that's the wrong answer. You want to keep trying. Of course, we're speaking with Greg Nemhard. He is the Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade at the American Legion. You also worked in VA claims before. Let's talk to uh, that a little bit here. For people who uh, have uh, an honorable discharge but think maybe I'm not receiving as much as I should from the VA or maybe there's something not quite right with my status, again, what are the first steps that someone should take in those cases? Can they just show up to the Legion and say, this is what I think the problem is. I need you to help me fix it. Or should they have a little bit more than that to begin with? Well, they can show up and say that, but the Legion's going to say, okay, sit down so we can figure out exactly what it is you think you have. Uh, you know, my recommendation always is to seek out that, that uh, American Legion or service officer because I didn't appreciate the value of a service officer when I first got out the, mili- the Marine Corps. Mm. And I got my 10% you know, for an injury and I was happy with it. Um, but there was a lot more uh, that I could have, uh, you know, qualified for based on my service that I didn't know. I just had no knowledge, even though I thought I did, until I started doing this work. And I realized, you know, the veteran community are really at a disadvantage when it comes to the knowledge of the VA system. So first and foremost, I always recommend seek out your service officer, seek out an American Legion representative, Talk to them, bring whatever military documents, medical records, or even uh, records of care you received after you got out in the military. That way they can review everything and give you the proper advice. One of the great things about the veteran service organizations like the American Legion that a lot of people don't know is that you do not even need to be a member of the American Legion to use those services. That's right. Officers. I mean, that is huge. That's a wonderful service that's provided to every eligible veteran out there, whether they're a Legion member or not. It's a, a great service. What are some of the other things that the service officers can do for vets out there through the Legion? You know, one of our main things is uh, advice. We provide advice to veterans. So whether you're seeking uh, VA benefits whether you're seeking uh, burial benefits or trying to determine a pre-need burial care for you and your family, uh, if you're seeking assistance with uh, housing or those things that can point you in the right direction, their service officers are a wealth of information uh, for things that are both local and and national. And uh, you know, if you have an issue and you think I don't know where to turn, your service officer can point you in the right direction. And those service officers are available at your local American Legion posts. If that post doesn't have one, you can find one at another post. And you can, of course, contact the American Legion directly. Moving back to the discharge upgrades, what what sort of percentage of people actually getting upgrade do you think we're seeing? If you were to estimate that or if you actually have any numbers, is there like a, a number that you have for how many people have been successfully able to upgrade their discharge status? The the percentages vary, I think, um, based on the service, but it, there's a large larger percentage of people not getting an upgrade than there is who are getting an upgrade. And I don't want that to discourage your listeners because, you know, 
like I said, sometimes they say no the first year, you go back and, you know, they consider new information and you get it the second time. So that's always a moving target. So I don't want to put a number on it because, you know, what may be 80% this year could be 85 next year. It is really a moving target. And a lot of it depends on how prepared the veteran is when they go for that discharge upgrade. When we look at the military, is the number of people being removed with an other than honorable status actually growing or shrinking, or has it stayed fairly steady throughout the years? Uh, so it looks uh, it looks fairly steady. Um, the majority of the calls I get are, free, are folks with honor the other than honorable, but the majority of the calls I'm getting are from veterans who have served uh, prior to 1990. There are uh, a number of veterans that have contacted me who have served since the first Gulf War who are seeking an upgrade. But right now, the majority of the ones that I'm speaking to are those older veterans who just did not even know there was a discharge upgrade process that they can even uh, seek. How do you think we can get that word out to those people, whether it's those Vietnam veterans, those <laughs> veterans from the 80s, the 70s? How do you think we let them know about the, uh, the possibilities that are available to them to maybe change the status of their discharge? By doing exactly what you're doing right now and reaching out to the service organizations and doing interviews, uh, they can go to legion.org. We've just uh, worked on a, a flyer that we're hoping to get published here in the near future that will be available to veterans seeking information on discharge upgrade and other benefits and uh, you know, just talking to your local American Legion representatives. We've got, in every state, we've got service officers that are available to help veterans. And like you said, it, you don't have to be a member of the Legion. It doesn't cost anything. And that can be found at legion.org <laughs> forward slash service officer. And they'll dial you into the people in your state uh, who are close to you that can help you with the issues. And of course, it, it doesn't cost anything, but... It costs somebody something. The Legion is paying for it, and that's part of what membership does. It allows for these services to continue. And, you know, we've seen a a decreasing number of veterans out there as the World War II generation leaves us, the Korean War generation leaves us. It seems to me like it may be more important now than ever for people to take part in the veteran service organization sphere, whether they want to join uh, the American Legion or or a different organization. This is something that's going to help a lot of people, isn't it, Joe? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, back in the World War II, Korean, Vietnam generations, a lot of people served a little bit. And with the advent of the all-volunteer force, there's just fewer veterans around because fewer people are serving a lot more you know, combat tours. And so you're right. I mean, we have 22 and a half million veterans in the United States today. And, you know, if nothing changes by 2043, we're going to have less than uh, 15 million veterans in the United States as the overall population goes to 405 million. So, um, you know, now more than ever, it's important for veterans to band together and, and join a VSO. And the VSOs, of course, beyond the veteran service officers and those wonderful community events that are held and fundraisers. The, v, the, the, the VSOs, like the American Legion, are also advocating on behalf of veterans each and every day. I mean, Absolutely. you guys are working at the national headquarters in D.C. Mm-hmm. There isn't a day that goes by. Even when Congress is out of session, the American Legion is never out of session. No, you guys def- are still definitely working. Definitely wearing down the marble on Capitol Hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are some of the, the biggest things that the Legion's focused on right now as Congress, of course, is back in session after their yeah, August recess? You know, I, I think, I mean, we had a pretty good year last year. Uh, with about five major pieces of legislation passed. So right now we're really focused on making sure that those are implemented properly and following up on that and make sure they're funded. Uh, A good example would be the VA Mission Act. Um, You know, right now that's uh, the the funding for that still in question past May of next year. 
Uh, we're also, you know, watching to see how the Department of Veterans Affairs does rulemaking to streamline those nine community care programs into one. Uh, we're looking at, um, you know, why are there 40,000 uh, provider vacancies over at the Veterans Health Administration? You know, there's some hard right. questions we're asking to Secretary Wilkie right now. Uh, because that's all capacity to treat vets. And, you know, it's just like um, community care programs is, is fine, especially for v- rural veterans uh, who live far away from VA facilities. But in places that do have VA facilities, we're wondering why those providers aren't hired. And if, you know, there's 40,000 vacancies, why are only about 4,500 listed on USA Jobs? You'd think there'd be 40,000. Right. vacancies listed on USA jobs. We've talked about that. It is interesting. And the fact that in the last uh, four years, I believe it is, that that number has stayed fairly steady between thirty and 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. They've actually added 40,000 additional positions at the VA and haven't filled those ones. And there's a lot of questions about redundancy and, sure. and what the real deal is. And that's kind of what we need to find out. And it's hard for you know Joe Navy, Joe Army, Joe Marine Corps, Joe Air Force, Joe Coast Guard to just walk up to the Capitol and get in there and and get those meetings, that's what the Legion and the other organizations in Washington, D.C. are able to do for them. Yeah, sure. And, of course, uh, we had the appeals modernization program that, that went out, and that is aimed at, you know, getting rid of this, this backlog of uh, claims and appeals that we have at the board. And I know the board had taken steps. They've hired new, uh, new judges and, and new personnel to try to deal with it, uh, and they rolled out the rapid appeals modernization program but that requires participation in order for that to be as effective as they they hope it will be. But we're looking forward to seeing how that also works out. And participation is what it's all about. I mean, if as veterans we don't stand up and say what we need and demand what we need to actually get done, it's great that they pass legislation, but then if they can't figure out how to pay for any of those programs, guess what? It ain't going to happen. Thankfully, there are organizations like the American Legion who are working tirelessly each and every day to make sure that veteran voices are heard on Capitol Hill and around the country. Joe, if people are interested in finding out more about the American Legion, what's the best way that they go about doing that? I would go to www.legion.org, and uh, I prefer if they add a forward slash and put join after that. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a little subset of uh, the website, of course, and You do not need to be a member to take advantage of the service officers as we've been talking about today. But if you do become a member, that is mean that means that you are helping other veterans gain access to those service officers and keep those programs operating at the high level that they do. Well, we've been speaking with Greg Nemhard and Joe Klemsler from the American Legion. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks Thanks for having us. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.